Welcome, uh, podcast listeners, to our newly minted program, aptly named Booth One, the most sought-after seat in the house, featuring adventures in the art of lively conversation and a celebration of culture and the arts. I'm Gary Zabinski, your host, and we have virtually an all-showbiz episode for you today, as my sidekick Roscoe and I have recently completed trips to New York, uh, where we visited some of the crown heads of Broadway. And speaking of crowns, here is the king of co-hosts, my friend, my buddy, Roscoe. Hello, your worshipfulness. How are you? Wow, I like that. I, I have spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle, so I'm feeling frisky. Don't scratch the floor. <laughs> Don't scratch the floor. Said nice the showgirl to the bishop. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice floor in our recording studio. It, it is. It's a lovely floor. It's a lovely table. We have beautiful equipment, and it's a lovely day outside. It's a Sunday afternoon here in uh, beautiful Evanston, Illinois, just north of Chicago, in our lovely and plush Booth One Studios. We're going to we, we get to... We should also point out that we were both in New York, but not together. True. Uh, we were not able to coordinate our time in the Big Apple together. Someday we might. Someday and, we might. And we'll do all of those things together. Uh, but, but I want to get to these showbiz stories and our Booth One experiences that we, we had. I certainly have a few to discuss, but there's some uh, a business that we should take care of first of all. Here's our regular segment of Keys to the Carly. Oh, fantastic. My take on what's happening with Carly Fiorina, my spinster favorite aunt. (laughs) Here's what's going on with her flubber facts. Now, she's aware of what the facts are, but she prefers her version of reality to everyone else's. Have you heard commentary about this? I've heard commentary about it. I don't know what story you're going to tell this time. She's been been sort of um, trumped in the spotlight of late. Good one. How is that? Very, very good. Simon Malloy in Salon, which is an online news and entertainment website, said, quote, Fiorina's claims are in keeping with her persistent allergy to saying things that are true. <laughs> <laughs> she has an allergy to saying things that are true. There are a couple of uh, claims that she made that are just out and out wrong. This is what she told Fox News host Chris Wallace last week. Uh, that uh, uh, Reddington Gulf was, quote, not honest with uh, HP, which was Hewlett-Packard when she was running it, about selling HP products to Iran. Have you heard about this? No. HP was selling products on the side to Iran. When it was illegal to do so? Indeed. A a potential violation of U.S.-Iran sanctions. The fact of the matter is that Reddington Gulf, which was a subsidiary of HP, was open about its sales of HP products to Iran, so everybody knew it. The company issued a press release in 2003, saying that its relationship with HP began in 1997 to focus on one market, Iran. So she, again, she's made up. She's made up facts to suit her own purposes. One other claim that she's made: Fiorina's second husband picked her out of the secretarial pool. This is what she says when she was a quote secretary during a town hall in New Hampshire over Labor Day weekend. Fiorina described meeting Frank Fiorina. It was a long time ago in the technology world, and there weren't that many people actually who took a young woman from the secretarial pool all that seriously. And he did. So I had to fall in love and marry him. But, as the Washington Post has reported and points out, Fiorina was not a secretary when they met. She was working in government communications at AT&T, and her future husband was in a higher position and took interest in one of her ideas. And the weird thing is that she makes it up 
and she convinces herself that it's true. Now, I'm not saying liar, liar, pantsuit on fire to her, <laughs> but let's face it, these are out-and-out provable displays of bending the facts, don't you think? When will this ever catch up with her? I mean, you and I know this, and certain people know this, but when is, when is the media, when is Walter Cronkite going to finally call, oh, he's not in the air anymore, is he? <laughs> Just, you know, everyone wants to be, give both sides of the issue and not sound partisan. At some point you have to say, this woman is a lunatic. She's clearly a lunatic and is not fit. She's not fit to run a McDonald's on Ashland Avenue, let alone the, the, the United States of America. I suspect Donald Trump is going to come out and say exactly that very, very soon. Uh, except he's trying to be careful so that it doesn't come out to be too women-hating, too misogynist. But... He, he's just the kind of, he's just the guy to say, you know what, you're a lunatic. You don't know anything about the facts. Anyway, that's my keys to the Carly for wow. this week. Brilliant. And we'll see what happens. Now, listen, we've talked about this many, many times in the past, and uh, many of our listeners do understand that my one big fear in life, and frankly, maybe my only fear in life, are... Sharks. There was a teenage surfer who was hospitalized after being bitten on the left hand by a shark off of Florida's coast. Uh, the 14-year-old boy from Vero Beach, he was with four other surfers in Atlantic waters off New Smyrna Beach when he was bitten Sunday morning. This was about three weeks ago. He suffered significant lacerations from what was described as a four to five foot black tip shark. Now, you know, I don't go swimming in the ocean. No. And you frequently tease me about feeling that, well, I, I, don't, go, I don't go chest deep in Lake Michigan either because I think that there are sharks there. Bull sharks, for instance, uh, account for about 36% of all shark attacks. Now, I'm going to tell you something that is probably going to blow your mind a little bit, and I, mm. hope, it, I hope it doesn't f- scare our listeners too much. The bull shark, also known as the Zambezi shark, is commonly found in worldwide warm, shallow waters along coasts and rivers and is known for its aggressive nature, predilection for warm, shallow water, and its presence in brackish and freshwater systems. Thought you were safe from jaws in freshwater? Well, think again. Bull sharks not only can be found in bays, but in rivers and lakes as well. They have even been known to travel as far up the Mississippi as Illinois. Go on with you. Although there have been few recorded freshwater human-shark interactions, they are probably responsible for the majority of near-shore shark attacks, including many bites attributed to other species. They've been spotted in freshwater areas in Africa, Australia, and even the U.S. So the next time you feel like you want to do a float down the local river, you might want to make sure that all your limbs are inside the raft before you do it. Mic drop. Mic drop. Say no more. I rest my case. Be very careful if you're in fresh water. There might be a bull shark lurking. Or have you read about these poisonous snakes now in, in California? <laughs> I, this is, ladies and gentlemen, this is our new segment. More things to be afraid more of. More things to be afraid of. <laughs> They've had these torrential rains in Los Angeles, and they think that you know there's going to be a terrible El Nino effect this winter. And what has happened is some poisonous gigantic, poisonous, very venomous snakes that have never been seen in California have been washing up on the beach. Get out. Yeah, this just hit the news to this, this, this weekend. Have and they, if they hit the beach, they could very well be washed into a nearby lake or river. Or sewer system. 
And show up in your toilet. And show up in your toilet. <laughs> in, in L.A. Wow. And beyond. Well, at least sharks won't show up in your toilet. Unless you have a very, very large toilet. Unless you have a very large toilet. <laughs> yes, indeed. Let's turn to the world of show business, and let's turn specifically to the world of Broadway and New York, because you and I just spent some time there. We're going to spend the rest of the program pretty much talking about this. First, I want to mention, have you heard about the controversy with the Tony Awards coming up this year? I heard that they don't have a place to have the Tony Awards. You know, it looks like they are literally uh, on the road again. Radio City Music Hall has told them that they can't have the space next June, next summer because they're going to do a summer Rockettes show. And uh, they've been bounced back uptown to the much smaller Beacon Theater, a disappointment for theater industry officials who they like the size of the larger hall, absolutely, of course. Um, the decision is raising some eyebrows around Broadway because this year's version of the Rockettes show was produced by Harvey Weinstein, whose Broadway musical Finding Neverland was snubbed by the Tony Awards this past June. However, theater industry veterans, some of them, said they believed it was motivated purely by commercial concerns, a calculation by Madison Square Garden that it could make more money by, uh, by selling tickets to the Rockettes than by renting the space to the Tonys. A logical conclusion. Mm. But the Harvey Weinstein connection really has me scratching my head. The Beacon Theater which I stayed right next to when I was in New York recently, uh, which is also run by Madison Square Garden, by the way. Wow. Um, housed the Tony Awards in 2011 and 2012 when Radio City was being used for a Cirque du Soleil show. Uh, there were multiple downsides for the theater industry because the Beacon only has 2,900 seats. Radio City has about 6,200 seats and, and less space for sets and crews, backstage accommodations and things. But there were also also upsides because the intimate space is more akin to the scale of a Broadway theater. Now, I remember years ago, they used to do the Tony Awards on a Broadway theater stage, usually with maybe some of the set of whatever the show was behind them. You remember those days, don't you? Well, I remember uh, the year that Les Mis uh, won all the Tony Awards. I believe the Tonys were at the Schubert Theater that year. It very well might have been. Holds less than 2,000 people. Indeed. Uh, I did read recently, besides this article, that now the Tony committee is also looking at alternative venues besides this Beacon Theater, including uh, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, <laughs> which would be off the island of Manhattan and uh, not very near Broadway, uh, but they have a beautiful, beautiful theater there. And I think that would create some logistical problems because I remember, do you remember the year that Vanessa Redgrave won the Tony Award for Long Day's Journey in Tonight? I do. And they had done a matinee performance at three o'clock Sunday afternoon. And Long Day's Journey in Tonight runs three, three and a half hours. And when the show, when the broadcast began, it captured... Vanessa Redgrave literally running down the aisle to get into her seat because she barely had time to make it the four blocks from her theater to Radio City Music Hall. So how are we? I mean, are they going to run special chartered buses to take Broadway performers from Times Square to the Brooklyn Academy? I don't know. It's the logistics remain to be seen. Well, and, and, and let's also think of this. Couldn't you not do Cirque du Soleil one night on a, a Sunday night in June? Well, it's the Rockettes. It's a Rockettes show. It's not the Cirque du Soleil show. That was a couple of years I'm, ago I'm when sorry, they got but, kicked but couldn't out. You, but couldn't you just, like, you know, Radio City, you, you, could, you could put 10,000 troops on, in the wings in Radio City. Couldn't you hide the sets 
or even use the sets. True. I think Harvey's just being mean. It feels to me like there's a little bit of posturing and uh, politicizing going on behind the scenes. I can't be certain of that, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to accuse anybody of anything. This is why I use my, only my first name on the show. Roscoe. Roscoe, because we don't want Mr. Weinstein coming after me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which could happen. <laughs> and break your kneecaps. And break my kneecaps. Let's get right to it. Mm-hmm. You were in New York about two and a half weeks ago. I was I in was. New York last week and last weekend. We saw a bunch of things. We had a bunch of Booth One type experiences. Why don't we start with your experiences? You saw some Broadway shows. You also saw some off-Broadway shows. I want to start with one that I am so pleased and proud of you for attending. And I know you saw it for 20 bucks, which is fantastic. Yeah. The Fantastics. The Fantastics. And how did you enjoy it? My, I, my favorite show. It, it was a great experience on so many levels. As we talked about on this show, it's playing at a, a, the, the tiny little, the Snapple Theater, which is just off 50th Street. And it's it's the size of, the, of an average living room. And the show's been playing there for years. It was going to close because not enough people are showing up. Then Magic Investors came in. So I didn't have a show to see one afternoon. Well, I could see something I've seen again. I don't feel like paying full price, blah, 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 blah. I'm talking to a nice woman at the TKTS booth who finally says to me at about 10 till 2 on a Wednesday afternoon, I'll tell you a secret. If you go to the box office and say, I want a 20 for 20 ticket, they'll sell you a seat for $20. So I walk to the box office, take take the world's smallest elevator to the third floor, spend $20 for a seat, sit down, and I'm with about 35 people in a tiny little space where I, I felt the ceilings were maybe seven feet tall, seven and a half feet. There were times when the leading actor who had the, the uh, El, El, Gallo. El Gallo had to be careful not to hit his head on one of the lighting fixtures. <laughs> and I would say, I, I counted heads. There were 35 people there, most of whom appeared to be tourists, many of whom I guess probably spoke English as a second language or not at all. And a number of people looked depressed, thinking, why I'm in this tiny little theater, but there's only 35 people. I've made a horrible mistake. It took a little bit of time for the actors to win over the audience. And and these are New York pros. I mean, these are people who know what they're doing. And, and they just, they had it. They had the stuff. Um, El Gallo was this handsome leading man with piercing blue eyes and a beautiful voice. And... Halfway through the show, the audience was enraptured and, and eating out of the hit the audience eating out of their hands. It was quite quite fun, and everyone was very excited by it. And I was, I was charmed and thrilled. Wonderful to hear. I'm glad. You know, it's it's my favorite show, and you finally saw it for the first time in your life. After 50 years of theater going, I see a show that everyone in the world has seen. And I, as well as they, I'm sure appreciate you supporting them financially, albeit for only twenty dollars. Yeah. That's probably what one of those actors was making for the night. Let's talk about some, some other things that you saw. You went to The King and I uh, at Lincoln Center. Yes, I did. One of your favorite shows, I think, right? Well, it's not one of my favorite shows. I have a new appreciation for Rodgers and Hammerstein. And, you know, for a number of years, you know, when you and I were in, of college age, Stephen Sondheim was about it. And we regarded Rodgers and Hammerstein as old school, something our parents went to, passe, cliched, who cares anymore? And I think they've really been rediscovered in the last 10 or 15 years. And, and well, if we go back 20 years, Lincoln Center did 
marvelous revival of Carousel, which put Audrey McDonald on the map. Then a few years ago, they did South Pacific, which was one of the finest productions of anything I've ever seen. Also Bartlett Schur, was it not? Also Bartlett Schur. Director. So I saw King and I with some apprehension. And as I said on a previous broadcast, I had been a little upset about Christian Chenna with not winning the Tony Award and instead the Tony Award going to the star of The King and I. Kelly O'Hare. Kelly O'Hare. After you. five losses. It's a magnificent production. It, it, thrilling in, in all ways. The scene design, was, the scene design is, is particular to that theater, which is a difficult theater to design for. It's both a gigantic proscenium and a giant thrust stage. And I read a lot about the show before I saw it, and their concern was that traditionally the show is always done with his, the, the fanciest sets and costumes imaginable. Mm-hmm. And they decided this time, let's put the actors front and center and the performers front and center, and let's have the scenic elements be in support of their performances and interpretations. Well, I think they apologized a bit too much. I found the show extremely lavish. It really took advantage of the space. And there are 51 people on that stage, 51 people on the stage, 29 people in the pit. Thrilling, spectacular. You really felt as if you were at an event. And Kelly O'Hare, God bless her, she carries that gigantic show on her shoulders. She's in amazing command. And she has star quality. She has that elusive it quality that goes beyond talent. And you just love her to death from the moment she walks on stage. And, you know, as, as is often with Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, you forget the very dark elements in the show. That he's not a nice man. That he forces, he subjugates people. That he keeps people as slaves. That he whips people. And not, not extremely lovable. But, but he learns and softens and changes in the show, as does she. And the theater was packed and up for grabs, and you could hear people um, sobbing in the end of the show. I'm a little weepy myself, yeah. giving your review. That's, I, I, yeah. that's awesome. I, I can't. I'd see it. I'd see it once. A, somebody once said this about a chorus line. I can see the show once a week for the rest of my life. That, that might have been me. It might have been you. It's, <laughs> it's going a bit far, but it was a thrilling show. Now we can't touch on very many other shows that you saw, which was a whole bunch. But I do want to ask you about a couple of them. Fool for Love, Sam Shepard. What was your feeling about that? that I wished I had seen any other play on Broadway or Brooklyn or anywhere in the world other than spending 75 minutes of my life watching this show. Here's my profound insight into theater. Do you know why we go to the theater? No, why? To have a good time and to be entertained. I will tell you I'm amazingly shallow. I don't go to be intellectually stimulated. I don't go to the theater to scratch my head and see, gee, what's really happening here? Who is the man in the corner in the chair who doesn't talk, who doesn't really seem to be in the hotel room with him, with them, but maybe is and is kind of watching and doesn't talk except when he does talk. And we're not sure if he's her father or his father or what he's talking about and what's happening. And I will tell you, the show begins in Tableau. Sam Rockwell is leaning against a wall. Nina is on a bed with her head bent over and her face in her hands. An old man is sitting in a rocking chair on the edge of the stage. The lights go up and nothing happens. For how long? An eternity. And at one point, (laughs) I thought of crying out, for God's sake, somebody say something, do something. And I thought, what's the worst that can happen? They can throw me out. I don't care. And it's 75 minutes long. 
it had received astonishing reviews last year. And the reviews in New York were through the roof. The New York Times, uh, writing about Nina, said, she is, in a word, magnificent. So for your taste, wonderful performances, did not like the play or the production, and maybe even quite the opposite of The King and I for you. Absolutely. Well, you're a musical guy anyway. Yeah, yeah. Call me shallow. I don't want to have to think too hard. I want to talk about a couple of the things that I went to see, and then we'll get back to your uh, uh, thumbnail uh, reviews of what you saw. Now, I haven't been to New York in uh, quite some time. It's been a couple of years for sure. So I wanted to see as many of the big hits, quote-unquote, that are playing as possible. So I went to see Fun Home, which you've seen. Marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. Uh, the uh, woman who plays the young girl, Allison, small, small Allison. Mm-hmm. I thought she was fantastic. The replacement. I loved her. Absolutely oh, loved her. Something I need to uh, <laughs> mention, though. Do you recall in the show, somewhere about halfway through, the kids come through, the girl and her two brothers, the kids come through the door and they're all very excited because they've just gone to the movies and they're going to go to the movies again. And they talk about Herbie, the love bug, the, the movie they've just seen. And I, we just Doesn't did that our Dean Jones. We just did our Dean Jones wow. kiss of death uh, on our last episode. And I, I, I laughed out loud for no particular reason. And I felt that everyone in the audience in the round was staring at me. <laughs> for that but it tickled me now how did the show work in the round beautifully i i thought it was wonderful i had i I obviously had no frame of reference for it not being in the round so i had nothing to compare it to other than the show i was watching right there now it's been said that in the round some of the sense of what the house was like the atmosphere of the environment of of the house they grew up in, that that got a little bit lost because you can't do very many walls or vertical uh, mm-hmm. structures. Did you see it n- un- not in the round, or did you see yeah. it at Circle in the uh, Square? No, I saw it at the Public Theater uh, uh, nearly two years ago when mm-hmm. it was done in one of their proscenium theaters. Uh, Some people have complained about the blocking, that if you're not front and center, you can't see key things. And others have complained that if you sit too close to the orchestra pit, the orchestra overwhelms the voices. Um, I had booth one seats. I was in the second row, row B, on one of the long sides, about three quarters of the way. Perfect view, away from the band, looking at the entire stage. And the place was sold out, but the seat next to me was empty. So Unbelievable. I, I was able to lean over and And, and, and I have believe room. you got to have price seat as I did. Well. I did. It was at the booth. Wow. I think it was 35%. Uh, I was so thrilled to see it. The other show that uh, we went to when we were there at the Ethel Barrymore Theater uh, was The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Now, also the lead guy who uh, won the Tony Award for this play is no longer with the show. I thought the young man who played um, uh, the, the lead, I thought he was great. And I loved the show to no end. And I loved being in the Ethel Barrymore Theater. Now, you know, the Barrymore was where I did my first original 
Broadway musical as a stage manager. Uh, Baby, Baby. Was oh at wow! The and there Theater. you were again. And there I was again, and it was such a thrill to be sitting in the eighth row on the aisle um, and and watching it and and remembering when I was sitting just maybe ten feet away at a big production desk where we were doing tech for the show. Uh, it was really a great thrill for me to be back at the Barrymore. I loved Curious Incident. Uh, I, I love the whole concept of it, the design of it. Did I think it's the greatest play? No. I, I particularly was drawn out of being involved in the show when they started mentioning how they were writing his story as a play, and the audience is right there. Uh, do you remember that uh, few moments, yes. a couple of lines between him and Shaban, who plays his therapist, his, his uh, person who runs the school? I didn't understand why we needed to go there, why we needed to be reminded that the they're just actors and we're just an audience and this is just a play. Yeah. This isn't real. This isn't should real. You and, and something you should mention is both Fun Home and Curious Incident uh, both won Tony Awards in their respective categories, Best Play and Best Musical. Yes. Talk about the production. I, one of the fantastic things about The Curious Dog is the production design. The design was pretty tremendous. It, it, it served the play very, very well. I liked the design elements that actually occurred in the second act more than I did the ones in the first act. The, the stage and the framework was very static in the first act, those sort of glowing cubes along the sides and the big wall, and he would draw on the floor and what he was drawing would then appear in some sort of magical way along the back wall. That was all very fine. What I liked about the second act, however, was that panels in the floor started to light up as he was running through train stations and trying mm -hmm. to find his way to London. And then unexpectedly, the back wall comes zooming forward about halfway and then zooming forward all the way and really traps the actors in when they're doing the underground scene where his rat gets lost or jumps, yes. you know, like gets lost in the tracks and he jumps down there and the smoke is going. I, that was one of the most harrowing four minutes of theater I've ever seen. Our producer uh, actually was with me sitting to my right. And she buried her face in her hands because it was her, it's her ultimate nightmare, like being shoved in front of the subway. Oh. She couldn't take what was going to happen. And I kept saying, it's going to be okay. I think they're all going to live. <laughs> He's the star of the show. Yes. Except the way that mm. that was done was so brilliantly teched, so precisely managed from the sound effects to the lighting, to the smoke, to the staging of the actors and the guy who jumps down to try to save him. Just, just wonderful. I, my heart was racing, racing, racing. I, I thought that that was, was beautifully, beautifully done. Oh, also, they do the escalator thing where mm -hmm. suddenly pieces come out from the back wall that you didn't expect at all. Can I say one more thing about the play that I found exciting? Indeed. Or are we belaboring this? Not or at should all. we move on? All right. At one point in the show, he's manically talking about something, and I believe he pulls a box out of the wall, and you'd understand that there's a box there, and he begins to build what, what becomes a, a train set. Yeah, he does this many, many times. Yes, putting up buildings and trees, and then willy-nilly pieces of train tracks around the stage until it becomes a continuous train track loop or design. And then he puts the train on the And it's, and it's the huge. Tracks. It's huge. And it's, it's huge. It, it covers the entire stage from downstage uh, right all the way upstage, then all the way back downstage left. 
Right. It, it, it's huge. And he, and he does it five or six times. He keeps yeah. putting pieces of the track together. Yeah, and it goes yeah. on and on and on. And then miraculously, once he's finished... The train starts moving. He puts the, uh, yeah, yeah, towards the end when, he's, when he says, I, I'm going to London to find my mother. The train lights up and the locomotive and starts ch- moving ch- down ch- the tracks. It was, it was amazing. It was an amazing theatrical effect. It's going to be going to be interesting to see what future productions of that show look like. To recreate that look and that set and those special effects will cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we'll probably go and look at scaled-down productions or minimalist productions. Well, it's definitely going to go on the road, and I'm sure they're thinking of how to make that happen. The, mm. the, the good thing about it is that it's essentially sort of a one-set play. They'll be able to mm. revise some of the staging in order to make it work if they bring it here to Chicago, if they don't have that downstage trap that they can use for the Underground Railroad. Mm. But definitely, uh, it'll be interesting to see on another kind of proscenium stage without those effects. Another show that we saw when I was there, <laughs> you'll, you'll probably laugh at this. I don't think you've seen this. I went to see Something Rotten. I've not seen it. Which is the very new musical about uh, the Shakespearean era, and Shakespeare plays a very prominent part in this show, uh, about discovering musicals. Um, I won't belabor the plot and the show very much, other than to say we enjoyed it immensely. But our Booth One experience with going to something rotten, other than having house seats in the front row of the mezzanine, which were fantastic. Mm. Which the, was it the St. James? Uh, it is at the St. James. We also had VIP backstage passes after the show to go meet the star, uh, Brian Darcy James. Meeting Brian uh, backstage afterwards was a huge thrill. You go back through the alley next to the theater, towards the stage door. You give your name to the person who's manning the stage door, and they have a big long list, and they check to make sure you're on there. And then we get these nice little passes with our names already written on, and we get to put those on our shirts. And then he says, go through here, watch your step up those two steps, take a left, and just wait on stage. And I said wait on stage and he said yes wait on stage so we did we walked up we walked the two steps we turned left suddenly there we are on the stage of the saint james right in the middle of an empty theater uh with all of the scenery uh, piled in huge mounds around us in each of the wings because you know broadway theaters don't have a lot of wing space so we waited there for a few minutes and then uh someone came out and said are you gary and i said yes and he said you're here to see Brian. I said, yes, I am. Well, I'm his dresser, and I'd like to take you back to his dressing room. So we got to go back to Brian Darcy James' dressing room and say hello to him and chat for a while. Thrilling. It was really exciting. And how was he? Lovely. It was a Sunday afternoon, and he had another show Sunday night. Oh. Um, that's one of the things that these plays are doing uh, now, where they have two shows on a Sunday. Back in my day, that was a very rare occurrence. Uh, you only did the Sunday matinee, but now the Sunday evening show seems to be very popular for is some this, reason. Is this one thirty and 6.30, or...? It was 2 and 7. Wow. So very tight. That was my Booth One experience at Something Rotten. And Brian was terrific. 
gracious. He's even more handsome in person than he is on stage. Couldn't have been more delightful. Uh, remembered working with me back here in Chicago on a couple of projects. Oh, you had. So you had met him before. You knew him. I knew him and had met him, which is how I kind of got my name on the list. But it's been a number of years. And you are familiar with him. Brian was in the 2006 uh, Stephen Sondheim tribute that the Grand Park Music Festival did. Anyway, Brian Darcy James, wonderful man, uh, very gracious, great to see him, great Booth One experience backstage. Uh, I want to jump back over to you and ask you about something that you saw. Again, we probably can't cover everything, but this one's important, I think. You saw The Gin Game. I did. With? Cicely Tyson and James Earl Jones. How was your experience at the gin game? Well, I'm, I'm going to step back a little and give you another one of Roscoe's theories on Booth One experiences and going to Broadway shows. As you know, I am often a snob about where I sit. And as the host of Booth One, co-host, sidekick, I expect to have Booth One seats. Broadway plays are phenomenally expensive. You know, it's, it's a day's pay to go to a Broadway show. So... This time, I'm in New York. As I've told you, I belong to the Theater Development Fund, which allows me to purchase tickets for a very low price, which was, you know, it's sometimes an important consideration, but you sit wherever they want to seat you, and you don't know where your seats are until you walk into the theater. James Earl Jones and Cicely Tyson, together again on stage for the first time in 50 years. He's 84. We won't have a chance to see them forever. I was in the last row of the mezzanine. Did it affect my enjoyment of the play? Yes. He has good features for the stage. You know, he's a large man, nice features that read all the way back. A, a total she, stage presence. Total stage presence and an unmistakable voice. She is tiny compared to him. And I frankly had a hard time seeing her with my diminished eyesight. However, pretty thrilling. And it was thrilling on many levels. I mean, the audience was enraptured. What a thrill to see the two of them together. You know that this is not an opportunity you'll probably have a year from now, certainly not five years from now or 10 years from now. This is a history-making performance. You know, and the fact that they could even learn their lines and move on stage, but you know, they, could, they landed the laughs. They knew how to make the show work. It was thrilling. Would I have been $120 happier if I was closer? I, I'm not sure. Yes, I would have been. <laughs> of course you would have, would have been. been. <laughs> I have learned that my snobbishness about where I sit uh, is grounded in fact. Well, it has received mostly good reviews. Uh, the New York Times was fairly much a rave, mm -hmm. would you say? Yeah, that's gonna, it's going to be a tough ticket. But uh, uh, there were a couple of reviews that were, were less than fully kind to the production. The Hollywood Reporter uh, states that the Pulitzer Prize-winning drama by D.L. Coburn, which is a 1976 two-hander play, is so slight it might almost evaporate as it's unfolding, but it would be churless to be ungrateful for a play that provides the opportunity to admire wily old prose James Earl Jones and Cicely Tyson. Would you agree with that assessment, Roscoe? Would you agree that the play is a little bit slight uh, and without those actors, perhaps it's not worth a revival? I think that's probably accurate. And the reviews across the board have criticized the show and said it's almost inexplicable that this won the Pulitzer Prize for drama because it's such a thin play. However, 
the original production was directed by Mike Nichols and starred Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin. She won the Tony Award that year. Some reviewers have said, you know, memory is a tricky thing. But they remember that that production is having given the performer, the characters, a much deeper inner life and uh, more substance and subtlety. Let me, t- let me say one more thing about the gin game. I was with a group of people. There was quite a group of people who gathered at the stage door to watch them come out. Sure. Everyone was very, very excited. It took a very long time. Finally, James Earl Jones came out, and they have um, iron railing up so that you can't bother the man. And he walked out happy, but he moves slowly. He's 84 years old. Uh, he moved slowly. It had been a long two-hour night for him. And he nodded graciously to people and, and waved, but he didn't stop to sign autographs. Uh, and, and no one bothered him. We all understood that. Leave the poor man alone. I never, ever, ever do this because I hadn't really been able to see Cicely Tyson as well as I wished I had. I stayed at the stage door for an hour, for an hour waiting for her to come out. Wow. And little by little, one by one and two by two and four by four, everyone peeled off until the three people that remained at the stage door with me all appeared to be certifiably insane. <laughs> you know, the, the kind of people who show up with posters from Sounder and <laughs> baseballs that they want Cicely Tyson to autograph. <laughs> so at one point, a young woman came out and handed out playbills that were allegedly signed by Cicely Tyson. Oh. At which I took, of course. But an hour later, she still hadn't come out. Wow. And I, I almost wonder if she... You had to lay down or take a nap or something. Was this a matinee that you saw? No, was it, it was between an, e- show? an evening show. Well, perhaps she gets out by another way and she was not backstage any longer. No, they would have told us. They had. They still had up the iron railings so really? there was a car waiting. Maybe she was having dinner in her dressing room or Maybe. something. Maybe. Hmm. Or playing gin. I also saw another play in New York. Oh, and, and I, I see the program and I'm jealous and beside myself. And this play has just started previews. It's at the Music Box, uh, an import from England, the Almeida Theatre production of a play called King Charles III, which is sort of a history, fantasy, fiction of if and when King Charles becomes king when Queen Elizabeth II passes away. And the play opens on the day that she has died, and the time of a couple of days later at her funeral, and uh, he has become king. Uh, it's a fascinating play. It's written in semi-verse, not necessarily Shakespearean iambic pentameter, but something very akin to that. There are some rhyming couplets throughout. Most of the language is very pedestrian English. You can certainly understand it as if it's just a modern play, Mm -hmm. but there's a certain lyrical quality to all of the language in it. I thought it was marvelously written, beautifully, beautifully crafted. Most of the performances are wonderful and terrific. As a play, it 
struck me about maybe 85% there. I saw the third preview of the show, and they've got a little bit of work to do. Uh, there was one performance, however, that they have to seriously, seriously look at, and it's the performance by the woman who's playing Kate Middleton. All of the characters are absolutely true to life. Wow. And Harry and William and Kate, they don't bring the kids out, <laughs> but they do refer to the kids an awful, awful lot. We had issues with her. She was cold and not very affecting. There's something going on with that part, and I can't quite tell if it's the writing or the performance itself. The guy, uh, Tim Pigott-Smith, who plays Charles, mm. wonderful, wonderful, very tragic, hero-like performance. It's, a, it's almost a... It's almost a King Lear-type show, um, as it, but if King Lear were a history play. Very interesting. Our friend George from Midlothian would have enjoyed this play oh. immensely, although he would have probably had many, many odd things to say about it, given his knowledge of the royal family and the workings of what goes on inside uh, Buckingham Palace and inside the, uh, the, the monarchy itself. But it's a wonderful show, and if you get a chance, I don't know if you will, uh, it doesn't open until early November, so we won't really know what the critics have to say, and hence what the public will think of it, but uh, certainly worth going to. Now, I went to a preview, and it was not full by any means. There were certainly many seats to be had, wow. but I think preview performances are often like that until word of mouth begins to register. Well, and, and you've said something else that, that was the point I was going to make. Many of the shows that I saw were in previews, and w once upon a time, you could see previews, at a lesser price than, than once the show opened, Those right? days are gone. Those days have been gone for years, but you paid less for a preview because you were seeing less of a show. So one of, one of my mistakes in this trip, in addition to cheaping out, I sat in the last row of the theater for Fool for Love, by the way, and pretended to have a bad knee so that I could connoiter my way into an <laughs> aisle seat. <laughs> so I think some of the shows that I saw suffered from the fact, you know, I saw the gin game in previews. It was maybe the fifth performance. I saw an off-Broadway show called The Humans. That was their fifth time in front of an audience. The show isn't there yet. Uh, the, neither of the shows were there yet. They will get there, but I should have to pay more money when they get there or just have the common sense to say, let, let, let the show get up and on its feet and get worked out and polished before I go to see it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. The, the days of the uh, low-priced or half-priced or even discount preview performances, as you say, are long gone. And it's a shame. The audience members should uh, have the benefit of realizing that they're seeing not quite the finished product. And so why pay quite the finished price? It just doesn't work that way anymore. And perhaps that's why word of mouth websites like All That Chat and all the Broadway-type websites are just full of chatter about what a show is from the first moment it does its first performance. I think they're, I think for the prices they charge, uh, they should be absolutely uh, to this, up to the scrutiny of anybody who sees them. And anything that's written about them or criticized about them or reviewed about them should be absolutely valid. Uh, again, uh, for the full price ticket that you're paying. I wanted to mention one other show that uh, I did not see but was uh, opened in Los Angeles, and perhaps you heard about this. Ali McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. 
in love letters. Yes, of love story fame. 45 years ago of love story fame turned moviegoers into, well, weepy messes, I guess you could call it. Uh, And love means never having to say you're sorry became an international catchphrase. Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw have reunited in the A.R. Gurney two-hander love letters. The play seems tailor-made for them who uh, imbue their performances not only with palpable spark and gripping emotional depth, and I'm reading now from the L.A. Times, L.A. Theater Review on the L.A. Times, but also with an aura of winsome nostalgia for a time when they were the industry's most romantically tragic and therefore most perfect on-screen couple. It goes on and on, but essentially says that they do a very, very, very good job. At the play's end, McGraw and O'Neill sob openly on stage. No. A response heightened by the shared history between them. They kiss, wrap their arms around one another, and slowly make their way off stage in a way that suggests, like their characters in Love Story and Love Letters, that there has always been love between them and there always will be. Oh my God, I, I dislike both of them, and I just got goosebumps Wouldn't when you told that story. Wouldn't it be great to go see this? <laughs> you know, be. I did Love Letters as a stage manager a number of years ago, back in 2001, uh, in the fall of 2001, which was not the most happy time in America. And uh, as you know, I did Love Letters with the late, great Charlton Heston and his wife, uh, Lydia Clark Heston. Uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful time doing it with them in this little off-loop theater, and they were delightful. And Lydia was really the rock at that point. Charlton was a little bit diminished. He would forget his lines quite often, even though, yes, they were right there in front of a book, but he would turn a page before he needed to turn the page, or he'd turn two at a time, and then oh, all hell would break loose and she'd have to talk him back into it. Or he'd just lose track of the fact that he was so involved with what she was saying and then he forgot that mm. his cue had come up. And But for the most part, they were fantastic. But I'm glad to hear about Ali McGraw and Ryan O'Neill joining again. Would it be, wouldn't be thrilling to see them. Yeah. I need to mention that a few episodes ago, we announced that our good friends at the restaurant, The Gage, remember The Gage? Yes. Uh, at 24 South Michigan Avenue here in Chicago, had donated a $100 gift card to our program as a giveaway for signing up to our A-list on our website, which is now, as you know, www.booth-one.com. Well, our producer had the drawing a couple of days ago, and the lucky winner is, Roscoe, drumroll please. I don't have to do a drum roll. Larry Freevault. Larry Freevault. Congratulations, Larry. Uh-oh. And thanks for being a loyal listener. We'll be sending that gift card to you soon. And we know that you'll enjoy the marvelous atmosphere and the food and beverage available at the Gage. Have fun. And again, thank you for listening to Booth One. We're probably uh, getting to the end of our uh, time, allotted time here, Roscoe, so I'm going to move down towards our Kiss of Death segment. I did want to read one or two things of a person who passed away since our last podcast, the famous baseball player Yogi Berra. I'm not going to read his obituary, but, you know, there are a lot of Berra-isms that he said over the years. Uh, It ain't over till it's over is one of the more famous ones. Others were, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) (laughs) It's deja vu all over again, also very famous. Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Referring to a restaurant. (laughs) Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I think we use some of those expressions and we don't even realize that they trace back to Yogi Berra. Yeah, yeah attributed to him. 90% of the game is half mental. <laughs> Brilliant. We will miss him uh, tremendously. Anyway, our Kiss of Death segment this week uh, is a woman who passed away just uh, about three weeks ago, and uh, she was uh, 93. And you're going to have many things to say about this, Roscoe. Uh, Jean Darling. The popularity of the long-running Our Gang series of comedy shorts from 1922 to approximately 1944, created by producer Hal Roach, which followed the adventures of a group of poor urban children. Everybody will know who these people are. Everybody knew who our gang was. Made unlikely film stars of its young cast. Jean Darling, who has died at age 93, joined the second Our Gang series in 1926 when she was, get this, four years old. With her golden locks, she was often at the center of storylines that involved the boys fighting over her, including Alfalfa. He, she was like Alfalfa's girlfriend for a while. But Darling, who appeared in around 35 of the 20-minute silent shorts, was a tough cookie who avoided intentional cuteness. The strength of the series, which was appropriately renamed Little Rascals, which is what most people will know it as, when shown on TV uh, starting in 1955, is that it portrayed children behaving relatively naturally and presented boys and girls of every color as equals, which was extremely rare in American films of the time when gender and racial discrimination was prevalent. Darling believed that the shorts made during the silent period were better because the children did not have to learn dialogue. Some were too young to even read. Well, she was only four years old. And were encouraged to improvise after the director had explained the scene to them through a megaphone. Are you uh, familiar with that technique, that the kids sure. did a lot of uh, ad-libbing and improvising of scenes because they couldn't read the dialogue? Mm. They just uh, were told, okay, this is what's going to happen, and you lost the mm. dog, and it's gone through the fence, and now let's see what goes on. Although Darling had small roles in three sound features, including including Jane Eyre in 1934, in which she played the eponymous heroine as a child. Uh, her screen career was virtually over when she left our gang at seven. <laughs> over from four to seven. Huge career. One could legitimately ask, quote, whatever happened to baby Jean? The answer is that despite being busy performing, she had to wait 16 years to gain comparable fame as the mill worker Carrie Pipperidge in the original Broadway production of Rodgers and Hammerstein's hit Broadway musical Carousel in 1945. It all comes back to Carousel. It all comes back to Carousel. <laughs> it's, it's almost unbelievable. I know. We, we profiled uh, our experiences with Carousel back about mm, 10 podcasts ago, and here it appears again, the original Carrie Pipperidge. Darling appeared in 850 consecutive performances of the show in which she lovingly put over her solo number, When I Marry Mr. Snow. There must have been very few in the audience who made the connection between this attractive woman with the operatic solo voice and the original Baby Jean from the Our Gang series or the Little Rascal series. She was born Dorothy Jean Levesque 
in Santa Monica, California, but her mother legally changed her name to Jean Darling when she was five months old, uh, a few days after her parents separated. Her typical stage mother, and this is a story that's been repeated more times than anybody can even count, that there was a stage mother in California who had a rather good-looking child. Stage mother had dreams of getting Jean into show business, and she had the singing and dancing lessons from a very early age that one would need. Unlike many child performers, Darling enjoyed her time in the spotlight and did not appear to suffer serious problems in adulthood. Well, that's kind of rare, don't you think? Many of the child stars of the day had a very tough time in their teenage years and their adult years, for sure. In her teens, she performed in stage shows and on radio, as well as studying singing. In the 50s, after her long run in Carousel, uh, she hosted her own TV show called A Date with Jean Darling and sang with Frank Sinatra, who she referred to as a very nice man, and Bing Crosby, who she referred to as an awfully rude man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On the radio in 1954, she married Reuben Bowen, who also went under the name Kajar the Magician, with whom she toured as a singing assistant in many countries, including in Ireland. Now, I I googled Kajar the Magician, and there is actually some footage of him that you can find from the Jack Parr Tonight Show. Remember when Jack Parr was the Tonight Show host? This is in 1958. He actually appeared on the show. Well, I I was a little young in 1958 in order to see that. But Kajar the Magician was uh, her husband for a while. After the divorce in 1974, she settled in Dublin, Ireland, not Ohio, where she wrote short stories which appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine and read her own children's stories in the guise of a character called Aunt Poppy on Irish radio and on TV. In later years, Darling became a keeper of the R Gang Flame, appearing at fan gatherings and film festivals. Did you ever see her at any of the I film festivals? I never did. I never did. She would have been a wonderful uh, guest uh, presenter or, or honoree at Cinecom. At the silent Film Festival in Italy, she entertained audiences with her recollections of her early days, and a couple of years ago, she sang songs from Carousel. Her voice hardly altered from that on the original cast album of almost (sighs) 70 years. She also appeared in 2013 in a Dutch film called The Butler's Tale, directed by her friend, an actress and singer called Renee Riva, and it was a short, silent comedy styled after the ones Ms. Darling starred in as a child. Jean Darling, child star, star of the R Gang uh, slash uh, Little Rascal series, dies at 93. I'm surprised you've never actually run into Jean Darling. Well, sometimes, you know, I go to this uh, film festival that we talk about every time we do a show. <laughs> Virtually. Well, and, it's around that time of year. It's around, yes. And I, I think that she was, pro- she, two things. Either she just wasn't interested in coming, or she had been into one of the conferences that I missed. I'd love to hear a recording of her singing from Carousel 70 years later. Uh, I'm not sure if that stuff's available, but I'm going to look a little bit on the internet. Well, that's about all the time we have for today, Roscoe. Dang, there's so much more to get to. Well, there's many, many things to get to, but that's why we do these podcasts over and over again. I guess. Yeah, so the disappointment on your face is really discouraging. Well, it's it's palpable. I can feel it. You cutted it with a knife. Don't worry. It was a thrilling show, and we'll do it again very, very soon. Say goodnight, Roscoe. Good night. Good night from Booth One. 